Due to the graphic nature of these crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of self-harm, suicidal ideation, and psychological abuse that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. 27-year-old John Wadowitz cruised through the New York streets with fire in his eyes. The day hadn't gone as he'd planned so far, but there was still time to turn things around. He gripped the wheel tighter and psyched himself up. This wasn't just about him. It was about love. Liz was all alone in that hospital room, counting on his success. He couldn't give up. The car slowed to a crawl as John reached the Chase Manhattan building on East 3rd Street and Avenue P. It was do or die. No more hiccups. He grabbed his shotgun from the back seat and stepped onto the curb. Through the glass doors of the bank, he watched the crowd of unsuspecting patrons going about their business. He felt something heavy in the air as he marched forward. John Wadowitz was going to become a legend. He grinned and pushed open the doors. Hi, I'm Lainey Hobbs, and this is Crimes of Passion, a Spotify original from Parcast. In the legal definition, a crime of passion is a violent crime that occurs in the throes of extreme emotion, leaving no time to reflect on the consequences. But in this show, we explore how passionate relationships sometimes lead us to criminal activity. How does a husband and wife become killer and victim, or killer and co-conspirator? If there's a thin line between love and hate, what manipulates our relationships into deadly results? You can find episodes of Crimes of Passion and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. This week, we're discussing the brash, unapologetic life of John Wadowitz and his relationship with Liz Eden. We'll explore the couple's fraught marriage, the complexity of Liz's gender identity, and John's misguided attempt to win her heart. Next week, We'll cover John's half-baked bank heist and the consequences of his reckless pursuit of fame. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. The Hargan women seem to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God, this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, starting May 8th, wherever you get your podcasts. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. 
the luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. John Wadowitz was the star of his own universe from the time he was born in 1945. Raised in the flourishing post-war euphoria of New York City, John's family was by no means wealthy, but he was nonetheless treated like a king by his adoring mother, Terry. From an early age, he got used to getting whatever he wanted. By the time he was a teenager, John's self-confidence quickly gave way to entitlement. Unapologetic to a fault, he refused to be anything other than his honest self. In his words, a man doesn't regret what he does. John kept that motto as he developed into a teenager full of machismo. He soon discovered what would become his lifelong vice, sex. He saw himself as a romantic, the lover of all lovers, Thanks to his massive ego, he became a flirtatious, chauvinistic, and volatile young man. Capable of both charm and fury, he was an explosive personality, interested in only one thing. After high school, John got a job as a bank teller for Chase Manhattan in 1964. It was here, at age 20, that he met co-worker Carmen Bifolco. John described their meeting as love at first sight, But that didn't mean he was only interested in Carmen. In fact, he brought two other women along during his first date with her. They sauntered up to Carmen with John in the middle. He barely registered Carmen's shock. With a smile, he simply said, one of you is going to be my lucky bride of the future. Carmen thought he was nuts, but soon found herself charmed by his bravado. After a few more dates, John was smitten too. He knew he wanted to marry her. The couple got engaged despite the disapproval of Carmen's family. While John's smarmy charisma had worked on his wife-to-be, her father refused to give them his blessing. John was upset, but before he had a chance to change anyone's mind, he was drafted into the Vietnam War. Though his marriage would have to wait, John was actually excited to see combat. An avid conservative and self-described warmonger, he was more than willing to enter the service. For a red-blooded patriot like him, fighting for his country was the ultimate act of pride. He packed his things and headed to boot camp. Now surrounded exclusively by men, it didn't take long for him to discover a whole new world of pleasure. Shortly after he arrived, he had his first sexual experience with another soldier. According to John, he awoke one night to find one of the other recruits performing oral sex on him. He was surprised, but when the man abruptly stopped, John insisted he continue. While his wedding had been postponed, his sexual desires continued to rage. He had no idea when he'd return home. For all he knew, he might never see Carmen again. He loved her, but his lust was too strong to ignore. So, 
he embarked on several relationships while he was at boot camp. A few weeks later, John was shipped out north to the Da Nang Air Force Base. It was there that he came face to face with the realities of war. In February 1967, his airfield was attacked. In the dead of night, the stronghold was pummeled by over 100 rocket strikes. The carnage was devastating, and John felt lucky to survive. But such a horrifying assault radically shifted his views on the war. The military was not at all the thrilling patriotic experience he'd anticipated. Instead, the bloodshed and violence he witnessed made him question his beliefs. Barely in his 20s, he was shaken by the trauma of facing combat. In the aftermath of the attack, John's illusions of glory dissolved. He was left confused and angry. He couldn't fathom why so many young men were doomed to die for a war that seemed unwinnable. Before I continue with John's psychology, please note, I am not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but I have done a lot of research for the show. In a 2017 article on the Vietnam War, sociology professor Richard Lockman explored how the conflict changed the average American's views on the military. When the confrontation began, many citizens, including John, had little understanding of just how deadly the situation on the ground was. The true number of casualties was often downplayed or not reported on at all. Misinformed young men were convinced they could find honor or glory fighting for their country. Instead, many failed to make it back home. As Americans slowly began to comprehend the situation, attitudes started to change. People grew less tolerant of violence and, as Professor Lockman wrote, began celebrating self-expression and individual autonomy. John had firsthand experience with the tragedies of the war and was fortunate to escape with his life. His conservative philosophy cracked. When he finally returned home in October 1967, his worldview was entirely changed. No longer interested in fighting, John was all about love. As soon as he got back to New York, he and Carmen were married. Unfortunately, the war hadn't done anything to tame John's ego. He was just as self-centered as ever and considered his own desires more important than anyone else's, including his new bride. His arrogance made him unable to compromise. On every issue, it was his way or the highway. And when he didn't get what he wanted, his temper flared. Carmen saw the first signs of trouble on their wedding night. During the reception following the ceremony, they had a huge argument over what to do with their wedding money. According to her, the fight was so bad that their priest wanted to annul their union right then and there. Despite their issues, the couple tried to make it work, but John was unable to change his ways. Their relationship took a nosedive, and in June of 1969, 25-year-old John walked out on Carmen. He didn't bother to give his new wife any warning. One day, she simply came home and found their place empty. Not only had John vanished, but he'd taken all of their belongings for himself. Carmen's future was shattered before her eyes. 
All that remained was a note that read, I left, go to your mother's. John apparently didn't feel any remorse for leaving Carmen behind. Newly single, he was much more concerned with his own libido. After his experiences in the army, he became what he called sexually oriented. It no longer mattered whether he was intimate with a man or a woman. All he wanted was sex. A week after he and Carmen broke up, John learned about the Gay Activist Alliance. While the organization was focused on the advancement of rights for LGBT people, John was more interested in their parties. He joined the GAA and became a member of the entertainment committee. He exploited his position to meet new members and sleep with as many people as he possibly could. To him, the movement was all about sex. He rarely, if ever, attended meetings, and the ideals of community and brotherhood were irrelevant to him. In general, he didn't seem to care much for the political interests or rights of LGBT people. He just used the organization as a dating pool. For the next two years, he took advantage of new members to get them into bed. But around 1971, John noticed his peers taking on a different attitude. It seemed like everyone he met was more politically involved than he was. In an effort to stay close to them, he started to become more active as well. He attended meetings and had a key role in a protest at the wedding bureau in early June. Though his own marriage hadn't worked out, John still believed in love and weddings. He felt strongly that LGBT people should have the same right to get married as anyone else. Two days after the protest, as thoughts of romance and love still swirled in his mind, John met 24-year-old Liz Eden. John wove through the crowded street at the annual St. Anthony's Feast in Little Italy. The festival was packed and the aroma of fresh food hung in the air like an inviting cloud. He wandered past the carts and stalls, lost in a sea of faces. For a while, no one caught his eye. Usually, he'd see at least one or two prospective hookups, but today, he wasn't interested. He had certain standards, and no one fit the bill. Then suddenly, he stopped in his tracks. Directly in front of him, with her arms wrapped around two priests, was the most beautiful woman he'd ever seen. She had dark hair, commanding eyes, and glowed with warm confidence. John was stunned. He'd seen a lot of knockouts in his day, but this woman was different. He wanted her bad. And he was going to get her. John's new crush was Liz Eden, a tall, vibrant transgender woman who commanded every room she entered. She had long hair and striking features. Though very little is known about her early life, we do know that she was born and raised in New York City. When she and John first met, she supported herself as a sex worker. A regular in the queer social scene, Liz earned a reputation for her energetic and magnetic personality. But that may not have been what attracted John. 
In his own words, the first time he saw Liz, he knew he had to have her. Whether that meant he considered her to be another potential sexual conquest or a more intimate partner is unclear, but given his obsession with sex, he may not have wanted anything more than that at first. Regardless of his initial intentions, however, the more they saw each other, the more infatuated John became. What started off as a hookup blossomed into a relationship and before long, he was head over heels. Liz was special and he pulled out all the stops to win her heart. He showered her with roses and wrote love letters confessing his devotion. Liz thought he was a true romantic. What she was most drawn to was John's support and openness about their relationship. Transgender communities often face violence simply for being themselves. Liz found John's unabashed passion for their love intoxicating, but John was no sweetheart. Though he may have hidden his selfishness from Liz at the beginning, his inner demons would soon come out. When we return, John's unstable ego ruins his relationship with Liz. Hi, listeners. It's Vanessa from Parcast. When you think of a criminal, do you picture a killer, a gangster, a thief? I bet you didn't think it could be the little old lady down the street who murdered her tenants. Every Wednesday on my series, Female Criminals, meet the unlikeliest of felons, mothers, neighbors, and unsuspecting lovers with a penchant for dangerous behavior. Discover the psychology and motives behind their disturbing crimes and find out where their story stands today. But that's not all. Airing right now on Female Criminals is our special five-part look at the world's most infamous femme fatales, women who were deceptive and deadly, but not always the villain. Catch these episodes and more by following the Spotify original from Parcast, Female Criminals. New episodes premiere weekly. Listen free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Sound the gifting panic alarm. You need to get an amazing gift. Wait, no, the perfect gift. Relax. Now you can use gift mode on Etsy. Gift mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy. Just tap or click gift mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. And Gift Mode instantly gives you curated gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. Now it's simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a housewarming gift for the new homeowner or a birthday present for the pickleballer, Gift Mode has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. Now, back to the story. In the summer of 1971, 26-year-old John Wadowitz and 25-year-old Liz Eden began a passionate relationship. Liz was unlike any partner John had ever had, and he did everything he could to win her over. Before long, she was enchanted by his passion and unparalleled confidence. Although he seemed like a catch, Liz would soon learn that John was far from perfect. Liz was a transgender woman, but John had no respect for her identity. As part of her transition, 
Liz eventually wanted to get gender confirmation surgery. She felt that it was part of her personal journey and shared her goals with John shortly after they met. He didn't even try to understand. John never used her preferred pronouns and wouldn't even call her by her chosen name. For his entire life, John refused to call her Liz, instead referring to her by the dead name she was given at birth. Though they had clear differences, John and Liz stayed together throughout 1971. By the fall, John wanted to take the next step in their relationship. From his perspective, marriage was the ultimate declaration of love. Though he was less interested in obligation and commitment, he firmly believed that if he loved someone, he should marry them. But there were two major problems in their way. The first was Liz's gender identity. Unfortunately, most of society, including John, didn't accept her as she was. Gay marriage was not legal at the time, so there was no way to make their union official. The second problem was that John was technically still married to his previous wife, Carmen. Though they had broken up two years earlier, they'd never gotten officially divorced. But none of that stopped John from proposing to Liz. He couldn't care less what the law said about it and didn't consider himself committed to anyone else. He had a lot of love to give and even felt like he should be allowed to marry more than one person at a time if he wanted. Whether this was due to tolerant open-mindedness or just another instance of his massive entitlement is up for debate. Either way, John didn't care what anyone else thought. If he wanted to marry Liz, he was determined to make it happen. In December 1971, the couple were wed in an unofficial ceremony. Though it wasn't legally binding, the two of them took it very seriously. John's mother, Terry, came as well as Liz's father. Liz wore a beautiful dress and John suited up in his military uniform. An ordained priest even came in to officiate. Not wanting to miss out on the momentous occasion, Randy Wicker, a journalist and member of the Gay Activist Alliance, filmed the occasion for the GAA archives. It was truly an evening to remember. But like John's first marriage, the joy was short-lived. Liz had made her desire for gender confirmation surgery very clear early on in their relationship, but John continued to dismiss it. He ignored how important the surgery was to his new wife, caring only about his own selfish desires. His lack of support had a catastrophic impact on her self-esteem. It's an issue that many transgender people face even today. In a 2016 article on improving health in these communities, human rights activist Simran Sheikh and her colleagues wrote about the harm that results when transgender people are deprived of empathy. They explain that the extreme social exclusion and lack of acceptance of transgender populations diminishes their self-esteem. These situations often lead to symptomatic psychological distress, depression, anxiety, and other mental health difficulties. John's refusal to truly accept Liz must have been agonizing for her. Their constant arguments and his unwillingness to understand her was heartbreaking. 
To make matters worse, John still slept with people after they were married, supposedly even returning to his previous wife, Carmen, on occasion. This kind of rejection caused Liz to fall into a terrible depression. Their fights became worse and led to a violent altercation just a few months after their marriage. Each claimed the other was at fault and their stories about that night vary greatly. According to John, Liz became suicidal and after a particularly bad argument, screamed at him that she couldn't take it anymore. In the heat of the moment, she grabbed a kitchen knife and tried to stab herself. John claimed he grabbed her wrist just in time and wrestled the knife away from her. In the struggle, he got cut on his hand and caused such a commotion that the police were called. Both John and Liz were arrested and taken to the psychiatric ward of St. Vincent's Hospital. John said that once they arrived, Liz changed the story. She told the doctors that it wasn't a suicide attempt, but rather that John had attacked her. In the ensuing confusion, they were both able to escape the hospital. It's unclear whose story is true. The only recorded description of that night came from John himself, and he could have changed the details to make himself look more heroic. But it's possible that Liz did alter her story at the hospital. She might have been justifiably terrified that the doctors would dismiss her gender identity as a mental illness and lock her away. She may have lied to save herself. Either way, the stress of being married to John was too much for Liz to handle. He wasn't going to change his mind about her surgery, and neither was she. So in April of 1972, less than five months after their wedding, she left him. She moved out of their Greenwich Village apartment and tried to put John in the past. But he wasn't going to let her walk away so easily. John stood in the empty apartment and tapped his foot on the cold floor. Car horns resounded outside the thin walls. As a lifetime New Yorker, he could usually tune it all out, but not today. Everything seemed louder now that he was alone. How dare she walk out on him? He jumped to his feet and paced back and forth. Liz had it backwards. John Wadowitz broke up with people not the other way around. She didn't get to decide when their relationship ended. He did. He stomped through the apartment, fuming. His chest puffed up and down and his face grew bright red. His head spun with images of Liz. This wasn't over. If she thought she could just walk away from him, she had another thing coming. John's toxic ego couldn't let Liz get away, and for the next few months, he became obsessive about getting her back. They still ran in the same social circles, and wherever Liz went, John made sure to find her. Though she told him to stop, he repeatedly tracked her down and refused to leave her alone. She became increasingly anxious, terrified that he would show up around every corner. Though John was sleeping with other people, he still felt a twisted sense of ownership over Liz. In his eyes, they were still married and that meant being together. 
at least until he was ready to end it. The longer John stalked Liz, the more her mental health declined. She grew more depressed and turned to self-harm to cope. She couldn't get rid of him no matter what she did. They fought endlessly, even after she told him she didn't want to be together anymore. Still, the weeks of torment wore on. Liz's friend, Jeremiah Newton, started to get concerned for her. He knew that her relationship was having problems, but didn't know the full extent of what John was putting her through. It wasn't until he saw the cuts on her wrists that he realized just how unhappy Liz was. When he asked her about the injuries, she laughed them off as a joke. Not wanting to burden her friend with the truth, Liz sunk further into isolation. All the while, John was relentless, becoming more bitter with each passing day. After three months of waiting for her to change her mind, he'd had enough. Insulted and resentful, he resorted to threats to get what he wanted. In mid-July of 1972, a month before her 26th birthday, Liz received the first of many demented letters from John. He wrote to tell her that she only had 28 days to live. More notes followed after that. 27 days, then 26. A ticking clock, winding down to the moment John would kill her. She didn't understand how John could say he loved her one minute and then do something like this the next day. She knew he had a temper, but never thought he would physically harm her. The daily harassment wrecked her fragile mental state. As the letters piled up, her birthday loomed over her like an inescapable shadow. She just wanted it all to end. Liz turned 26 on August 19, 1972. After being tormented for the past month, she assumed that she'd finally reached the day when John would make his move. By that point, she didn't care anymore. She was emotionally drained, but if she was going to die, it would be on her own terms. On a day when she should have been celebrating, Liz prepared to kill herself, and that night, attempted suicide. Around 7 p.m., she started to dip in and out of consciousness. Then, there was only darkness. When she finally opened her eyes, she was in a bed at Kings County Hospital. She had no idea how she got there or how long it had been, but she was alive and she wasn't alone. Though the details are unclear, John somehow found out about Liz's overdose and met her at the hospital. He soon learned she was being held in the psychiatric ward under close supervision. Considering he had harassed and threatened her for weeks on end, it's hard to say whether John's concern was genuine or not. Regardless, he and Liz both understood the severity of her situation. Transgender men and women are dangerously misunderstood and underserved by health professionals. They wrongly considered Liz's gender identity to be a mental illness that needed to be eradicated. If she stayed there, her life would be at risk. John demanded she'd be released into his care, but her doctors refused. 
they had already made up their minds that Liz needed treatment, not for her depression, but for her gender identity. John was told they were planning to use electroshock therapy and that Liz would be permanently confined to the hospital. When he was finally allowed to see Liz, any ill will he felt before her overdose vanished. He watched her on the bed, scared and in pain, and promised to help. She wouldn't be a prisoner. With the doctor's threats still fresh in his mind, John made a decision then and there. He was going to break her out, whatever the cost. When we return, John plans Liz's escape. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Now, back to the story. In August 1972, 26-year-old Liz Eden was hospitalized after an attempted suicide. Doctors told her former lover, 27-year-old John Wadowitz, that she would be held in a psychiatric ward for the rest of her life because she was a transgender woman. John's mind raced as he left the Kings County Hospital. He'd have broken her out right then and there if he could, but he was just one man against an army of doctors and security guards. He needed help. Please note, the following details come from interviews with John himself. His version of the story has been called into question, but this remains the clearest idea of what happened over the next few days. On August 21st, 1972, John contacted two men he knew from a local bar, the first was 20-year-old Bobby Westenberg, a handsome young man with long blonde hair. The second was 18-year-old Sal Naturale, a career criminal from New Jersey. John offered them each $50,000 to help break Liz out. To his delight, they agreed. The only problem was, John didn't have anywhere near that kind of money. But he needed it fast, the longer Liz stayed at the hospital, the more danger she was in. So he pitched a ludicrous idea to Bobby and Sal. There was only one way they could get that much money in a short amount of time. They would have to rob a bank tomorrow. Little is known about Bobby and Sal's background. It's unclear why these two men would ever agree to help John with such a proposal. But according to him, it didn't take much effort to persuade them. John and Bobby had no criminal history at all, and Sal had never done anything as serious as a bank robbery. Yet somehow, 
John was able to convince them they were the perfect team to pull it off. Despite their inexperience, John was as confident as always. In fact, he thought it would be easy. There was no need to overthink it. They would be in and out in minutes. His accomplices agreed. Whether out of ignorance, ego, or both, John was certain they could get away with it. As such, the men didn't bother to come up with a plan of any kind. All they knew was that they needed guns. Pulling their connections together, they quickly assembled their arsenal. One handgun, one rifle, and one shotgun. John had seen enough movies to know they couldn't just walk into the bank with the weapons. They needed a way to conceal them. Never short of ideas, he came up with an absurd solution. He found an industrial-sized Wrigley Spearmint gum package and crammed the guns inside. John thought it was clever and that people would assume it was some sort of pop art installation in the vein of Andy Warhol. Believing it to be a decoration, no one would think twice about them carrying it inside a bank. Satisfied with their preparations, the men loaded their car and spent the night together at the Golden Nugget Motel. When they awoke on the morning of August 22nd, John felt they could use some inspiration before the heist. Without a proper strategy for the robbery, he wanted them all to at least be in the right headspace. Bobby and Sal agreed, so the three of them started their day by catching a matinee screening of The Godfather. A few hours later, they emerged, pumped full of adrenaline. They were ready to rob a bank, They just had to find one first. As he wound through the New York streets, John felt like a true mobster. With a car full of guns and money on his mind, Don Corleone himself would have been proud. John grinned as he staked out the neighborhood in search of an easy target. In just a few hours, he'd be rich. And by tomorrow, Liz would be safe. No more worries he couldn't believe a plan like this hadn't occurred to him earlier. He roamed the city with Sal and Bobby looking for an ideal target. The trio passed bank after bank, but nothing caught their eye. Finally, John spotted a promising mark. His heart raced with anticipation. He'd never felt so alive. He parked the car along a busy street and climbed out. As he watched the oblivious New Yorkers passing by, he cracked a smile. He and his crew were about to pull off the greatest robbery the city had ever seen. He trained his eyes on the front door of the bank. They had no idea what was coming. Then, he heard a gunshot. A deafening blast rang out behind him. Startled, John spun around to see Bobby and Sal frozen, still holding the comically large Wrigley's box in their arms, the shotgun laid at their feet. It had fallen to the ground and had gone off by accident. John couldn't believe their incompetence. He could feel the confused and terrified stares of nearby pedestrians boring into him. He stormed over, picked up the gun, and shouted for Bobby and Sal to get back in the car. People watched the men in stunned silence, unsure of what to do. 
Before anyone could call the police, John sped away. He was furious, but he wasn't about to give up. He had a mission. One minor setback wasn't going to stop him. The adrenaline gradually settled as the men resumed their search. A little while later, they found their second target, a small lonely bank in the middle of Howard Beach, Queens. It was perfect. The trio geared up, this time cautious not to make any more mistakes. With the gun box safely tucked under an arm, they stepped inside. Sal quickly spotted the lone security guard and approached slowly. His fingers hovered next to his handgun, ready to draw. Just as he was about to kick things off, a woman cheerfully called Bobby's name from across the room. In a bizarre coincidence, Bobby had been recognized by his mother's best friend, who just happened to be at the bank that day. Sal's hand lingered inches over his weapon as the woman struck up a conversation. Bobby was completely caught off guard, but kept his cool as she chatted his ear off, unaware she'd just interrupted an armed robbery. John knew they had to walk away. They'd been made before they could even get started. Frustrated, he stood by impatiently, waiting for the conversation to end. After a few minutes of small talk, the three men left together. Clearly, luck was not on their side. After two failed attempts, their lack of preparation could no longer be ignored. John knew they would have to change things up if they were going to try again. To do things properly, they'd have to do a dry run first. The trio returned to Manhattan and scoured the neighborhood. No one wanted to make a decision, but eventually they settled on a bank to try out and pulled over. They went inside just for a few minutes to scope the place out. Satisfied with their choice, they got back in the car to practice part two, the getaway. John hopped in the driver's seat, put it in gear, and promptly smashed into the back of another car. Things could not have gone worse. After a moment of deliberation, the men got out to check the damage. The driver of the vehicle they hit wanted to call the police. With a car full of guns, John was not about to let that happen. Rather than wait around for the authorities to arrive, the trio fled the scene. By that point, all three of them were exhausted. They had driven around for hours and after three close calls, their energy was drained. It was already afternoon and if they didn't pull the robbery off soon, the banks would close for the day. John refused to quit. Bobby and Sal were on the fence and he knew he had to rally his team. As they sat in the car demoralized, he told them they had to give it one last try. With the sun cresting over the New York skyline, John turned back toward Brooklyn. At 3 p.m., he rolled to a stop at the corner of Avenue P and East 3rd Street. In front of them was their fourth and final mark of the day, a humble branch of the Chase Manhattan Bank. The men entered the lobby and scoped out their surroundings yet again. Crumpled in John's hand was the note he planned to slip to the manager, demanding the money. At the bottom, he scribbled, 
This is an offer you can't refuse. It was signed, The Boys. John felt the adrenaline course through his system. He'd waited for this moment all day. The time had finally come. Like the Don himself, John was about to make history. But all of a sudden, Bobby stopped in his tracks. He turned to John, face covered in sweat, and told him he couldn't go through with it. John was stunned. They'd wasted the whole day preparing for this moment, and now Bobby wanted to back out. He fiercely demanded an explanation, but Bobby didn't have an answer. Nerves rattled, he told John he had to go and walked away. John and Sal stood motionless for a moment, unsure of what to do. They were already there. The money was right in front of them. They couldn't just call it off now. John had too much to lose. He uttered a quick prayer, made the sign of the cross over his heart, and pulled out his shotgun. Thanks again for tuning into Crimes of Passion. We'll be back Wednesday with part two of John Wadowitz and Liz Eden's story. We'll detail John's poorly planned robbery and the eventual call from Hollywood that changed his life forever. You can find more episodes of Crimes of Passion as well as all of ParCast's other podcasts on Spotify or your favorite podcast directory. We'll see you next time when true love meets true crime. Crimes of Passion is a Spotify original from ParCast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler. Sound designed by Trent Williamson, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Aaron Larson. This episode of Crimes of Passion was written by Grayson Niles, with writing assistance by Terrell Wells. Fact-checking by Haley Milliken, and research by Mickey Taylor and Chelsea Wood. I'm Lainey Hobbs. Hobbs.